Welcome back. Yeah, yeah. This is STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And we are, well, I'm always in my closet when we record, but I'm like in a closet inside <laughs> oh. of our own personal prisons. So, yes. Um, hold on, Emlyn. <laughs> The cats just knocked something over. They had like, oh my god, they just knocked a bunch of stuff over. And then one had fallen into the bathtub but couldn't get back out because it's more sloped. (laughs) And like was scratching up and down the sides. Okay. Wowza. Wowza, wowza, wowza. All right. Um, so this is your Women in Science History podcast. Just had a little cat drama. I'm a little flustered right now. Well, we are, um, we're back for another episode. We're both hanging out in quarantine. It's a great time to record. We're here to entertain you, dear listeners. Yeah, and, um... I just hope everybody out there is staying safe, staying home, finding some fun things to do, listening to podcasts, etc. What are you doing to stay sane right now, Emlyn? I started a garden in my backyard and um, need to plant some things. I had to like rope it off because as soon as the dogs saw that I had dug up a bunch of dirt they decided they needed to also dig up a bunch of dirt and so my nice like flattened hoed you know garden then became <laughs> like uh holes with shia labeouf oh yeah yeah, yeah. so i had to uh, rope them i had to yeah. rope them off so i haven't planted anything yet because <laughs> i'm trying to make sure that they're not gonna get in there yeah good thinking yeah what about you smart cats kitties diarrhea yeah as you can probably hear here and there there's lots of kittens i've got three kittens and their mom right now and they've been keeping me pretty busy (laughs) they're pretty crazy um they poop a lot and yeah i feel like i'm becoming an insane cat lady (laughs) tis the time if if ever there was a time it is now at least i got a little company though yeah so that's good Indeed, indeed company is good Okay, should we get started? Yeah, tell me about this lady. Okay, so although we usually try to switch up topics from up to up, this week I decided to keep on theme um, since we're, you know, officially on lockdown from coronavirus, and I thought we could pay tribute to another pioneer in the medical field like we did last episode with Clara Barton. Mm -hmm. And so the woman that I picked to talk about this week is Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who became the first female African-American doctor in 1864. Awesome. I've definitely heard the name Crumpler in my, my Googlings. 
Yeah. And there's, so there's not a ton of information about her. A lot of what we know um, is basically just from a foreword in a book that she wrote, but I tried to piece together as much as I could. I will say there aren't any pictures of her in existence, but if you look (laughs) online, like people use another woman's picture for her a lot, but Uh just letting our listeners know that that's not actually what she looked like and we don't know. Okay. Um, so Rebecca was born in Delaware as Rebecca Davis in 1831, and she grew up with her aunt in Pennsylvania. Her aunt was unofficially a medical caretaker of sorts and provided care for sick neighbors and friends throughout most of Rebecca's young life and was essentially just a big inspiration to Rebecca, Mm -hmm. um, in her early years. And Rebecca later wrote that because of her aunt's caretaking, she herself conceived a light, early conceived a liking for and sought out every opportunity to be in a position to relieve the suffering of others. That's so nice. So, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They're good goals. Yeah. And then growing up, Rebecca attended the West Newton. English and classical school in Massachusetts. I'm not sure if that's one school or two, but she attended some kind of schools, schooling in Massachusetts. When she was 21, she moved to Charlestown, Massachusetts, where she worked, started working as a nurse. And at that time, there weren't any schools for nurses. And so it was not unusual to just be working as one without any formal training. Man, we really. I don't know. Like the the nursing. <laughs> I just think about like nursing back in the day and there was just no rhyme or reason or yeah. formal training and it scares me so much. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also such an essential need as oh, it yeah. still is, right? But I'm so. glad now that I know my ner- the nurses taking care of me have been trained. Right. <laughs> it's just, it feels good. They know the, what all our organs are. Yes. And the, the, the different veins and <laughs> yes, all the good stuff. <laughs> all that good stuff. <laughs> okay. And let's see. In the same year, she married her first husband, Wyatt Lee, who we don't really know that much about, except that he might have been an escaped slave. Um, unsure. Hmm. Yeah, we in really don't 18- know much of them. Yeah. Um, in 1860, with the assistance of the doctors she worked for as a nurse, she applied and was accepted to the MD program at the New England Female Medical College in Boston, which awesome. was the first women's medical college in the world. Amazing. And her tuition was paid for by a scholarship endowed by the Wade Scholarship Fund which was founded by Ohio abolitionist Benjamin Wade. Okay. And, yeah, I don't know much about that fund, but it was just, like, cool that she got the scholarship and that all these doctors were really supportive of her getting more training. Yeah. By going to a medical school. Nice. And the school itself kind of has an interesting history. It was founded by this doctor, Samuel Gregory, who... 
and it had been open for about 10 or 15 years before Rebecca joined it. But he opened the school because (laughs) he thought that men should not assist with childbirth. (laughs) Oh, why? Which is is like, it for some like the, creepy reason? I don't know, but but part of his founding beliefs, I guess, were that more women needed needed to be trained to attend to their own health. So it's okay, like I, I, I mean, I support that and agree. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm like, or just everybody could <laughs> do this. You know, it yeah. was just a weird. It, so it started, I think, as a a sort of medical type school for midwives specifically. Uh uh But after a few years, they became accredited and were allowed to issue MDs and added more classes and stuff. So by the time Rebecca joined, it was, you know, a full MD program Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever that looked like at that time. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, so even still, the school. Oh wait, I sneeze. <coughs> Sorry, I've got bad allergies. Uh oh. Not not Corona. That's good. Okay. Stay safe. So let's see. So even still, the school was derided by other male physicians at the time, who thought that women were not strong enough or too sensitive in nature to be doctors. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Which we know is obviously not true. Obviously not true. Yeah. And during the first year at school, women took classes in different medical topics, including obstetrics, but also including um, anatomy and physiology, chemistry, medical theory, and common diseases of women and children. So still mostly training to treat women and Mm -hmm. children, but that's a pretty important part of our population so at least someone's being trained Mm -hmm. in that okay and in the second and third year they apprenticed with an established physician and they wrote a thesis and for some reason yeah which i couldn't find that thesis and the school doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. but yeah so Although some of the faculty had reservations when it came to allowing Rebecca to graduate, which it's not quite clear what their reservations were, um, but the board of trustees ultimately voted to pass her after her final oral examination and awarded her a doctress of medicine in 1864. A doctor. I never heard the word... Yeah. Doctoress? Doc, doctress. Doctress. D-O-C-T-R-E-S-S. Yeah. Which is, you know, considered an MD. Uh-huh. But it's for women. Gotcha. It's like, you know, like actress, basically. We, we must specify. Waitress. Yeah. And only about 35% of students actually graduated from this college, so that was pretty remarkable. Yeah. And she was one of three people to graduate that year. That's a small class size. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so in 1864, that year, she became the first female African-American licensed physician in the country Amazing. And one of only 300 female American physicians 
uh, out of over 50,000 physicians in the U.S. <laughs> at that time. So really, yeah, yeah, pretty remarkable. Not a lot of and ladies. Later, this school closed and merged with Boston University to become the Boston University School of Medicine. Oh, cool. Which, yeah, it's pretty cool. Some things just say it closed, but others say it merged with the university. So I think maybe, I don't know if the university just bought it or what, you know, Mm -hmm. technically happened then. But anyway, so let's see. Her first husband died of tuberculosis in 1863, the year before she graduated. But the year she graduated, she married again to Arthur Crumpler. And Mm. we know a little bit more about him. It's not clear when Arthur was born, but he had been enslaved in Virginia for the first um, 35 to 40 years of his life and had only a few years earlier, escaped after the start of the Civil War Mm -hmm. in 1861, when basically there was an attack on kind of his the region that he was living in. And at that time, there were just more places in the South for slaves to escape to without repercussions or fear of getting caught, you know, once the Civil War started. What year was this? 1861. So this is a few years earlier. Gotcha. When when did they get married? 1864. Okay, right at the end of the Civil War. Yeah. So he got to Boston in 1862 where she was. And uh, because he had heard basically that a lot of slaves were traveling there and being welcomed there, And he was taken in by a man, Nathaniel Topliff Allen, who had previously been Rebecca's high school teacher. And so presumably they were introduced through this guy, but Mm -hmm. there's no exact details on that. It's just like there's reports on this guy, Arthur Crumpler, and there's reports on Rebecca Crumpler. And it seems like this is how they could have connected. So... And, but it might even be a different Arthur Crumpler. <laughs> What's kind of interesting, but I, it seems so coincidental that the two Crumplers and they both know this guy and both live in Austin. We know that she married an Arthur Crumpler. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe so. it. I think you've, you've yeah. put the pieces together well. Well, other people put the pieces together, so I'm just trusting them. They're they're piece <laughs> they're piecing. Yeah. Yeah. But I just thought that was pretty interesting. Like mm-hmm. he just escaped from Virginia. Um it's just such a different time. Yeah. Really crazy. Okay. And so in that same year, 1864, that she graduated and remarried to Arthur. She started her medical practice in Boston, where she mostly cared for poor women and children. Nice. However, after the war was over or ended in 1865, Rebecca and Arthur moved down to Richmond, Virginia Mm -hmm. um, to do what she considered or called missionary work to help treat recently freed slaves in that area. And so, specifically, she worked under the direction of Orlando Brown, the assistant commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau for the state of Virginia, 
where the Freedmen's Bureau had been established by Congress to help the 4 million newly freed African-American people transition from slavery to freedom. So they were helping people find food, housing, and medical care and recruiting then, you know, doctors Mm -hmm. who would treat these people. And so while she was there, Rebecca helped treat a population of over 30,000 African-Americans. However, her assistance was not well received. Oh. So male doctors that she worked with and pharmacists basically didn't respect her as a doctor, either because of her race or sex, and oftentimes probably because of both, like a combination of both. So that was unfortunate. And, you know, because of this, she never really felt welcomed in the medical community there. Yeah. And so she and her husband eventually returned to Massachusetts after her job was basically finished Mm -hmm. in Virginia. I would imagine that even though she wasn't liked by her quote unquote like peers in terms of other doctors and things like that, I would imagine that it was probably such a wonderful sight for newly freed slaves to see an African-American doctor being the one that's like helping them and treating them. Yeah, I didn't hear anything about or read anything about her patients not accepting her care. It seemed to be, you know, I'm sure, you know, being in the South in general was not a very welcoming place at the time. And then I don't know the, like, race or sex of anyone she worked with, Mm -hmm. but I know it's probably mostly men. Yeah. And then, I, yeah, so it's just, yeah, it just seemed like people weren't ready for her. (laughs) But I would guess that the people she was treating didn't mind either way, you know, and hopefully saw hope and that they could maybe have her career similar Mm -hmm. later. I don't know, though. Yeah. Tell me more. Okay. So, yeah, so they moved back to Massachusetts, and in 1869, she opened up a new practice in Beacon Hill, a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Boston, where she treated children either in her home or out of the home, and she treated them sometimes for little or no pay. And it's not totally clear what Arthur did during this time, but some records say he was working in local stores. Mm -hmm. In 1870, they had a child, Lizzie Sinclair Crumpler, and I think they just sort of live like that for the next 11 years. In 1880, they moved to New York and to Hyde Park, New York, and it's not clear if she continued practicing, Mm -hmm. but she did write a book called A Book of Medical Discourses in Two Parts, in which she provides advice for women on treating other women and children. Oh, and which may well be the first medical text written solely by an African-American author. That's cool. Um, Yeah, though there may be other texts they're attributed to white authors. Mm -hmm. This one is, like, confirmed, and, yeah, and it's definitely by her, and her name is on it, which is really great. And this book she dedicated to, quote, Mothers, nurses, and all who may desire to mitigate mitigate the afflictions of the human race, 
which really was just her goal her whole mm-hmm. life, I think, was to help people feel better. And it included information on breastfeeding, dieting, um, not like losing weight, but like being healthy, treatments for cholera, diphtheria, measles, burns, and other ailments women and children face that she had experience with. And her intention, it seems, was to help women be less reliant on men for medical advice. Yeah. And to give them the tools to treat themselves or others or become, you know, nurses or doctors themselves one day, perhaps. After that, we don't know much about her and th- except that she died in Hyde Park, New York in 1895. That's amazing. And that's what I got. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable. So she's like writing to try to give some independence and some you know, knowledge to women so that they're not so reliant on men. And I feel like that's still an issue in, like, the medical field of women. Like, one, there's still, you know, I feel like there's still a bias of, like, male doctors. It's definitely not as much at all. Information is power. And I feel like often male doctors don't believe or don't take as seriously women's like pain or like how they feel in terms of like medical right. issues and so like having the tools to be able to stand up and be like no no no, this is how like i have some understanding and be able to like articulate things i don't know it's just yeah so i feel like it's still an issue and that's awesome i'm clearly yeah. not articulating those things well but <laughs> i get it though yeah it's I think for her, you know, it was obvious that maybe women and children don't always experience diseases the same way men do. But also, you know, she was just mostly treated women and children her whole Mm -hmm. life, I think. And so had all this expertise and thought, you know, everyone should know what I know, basically. And that was kind of... Um, like she felt empowered having all this knowledge and so she wanted to share that which is pretty great well yeah so i mean so much of a lot of our like understanding of uh symptoms of a variety of disease come from just like males like heart attacks like when we talk about what are the symptoms of heart attacks the ones that we think of typically are the ones that are symptoms of men having heart attacks and like women manifest right. heart attacks. Their symptoms are like very different and those aren't ones that we like talk about. Yeah. Or like when doctors started prescribing Ambien to people, mm-hmm. most tests had been done in men. Mm-hmm. And so they were prescribing dosages for women that were way too high. So there were all these like cases of women sleepwalking and like, doing crazy things in their sleep like it was just too they're taking too much ambient essentially you know and so it's just really silly that 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 those things still aren't even taken into consideration all the time how things affect women and men differently or anyone else you know yeah exactly well that's awesome i liked that that was great yeah all right all right All right, this is the Women Who Work section where we give shout-outs to badass ladies making history today. I'm ready. Okay, good. 
So my shout out today goes to Rebecca Lacken, who's a PhD student at the University of Bath in the UK, for a paper that came out in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society in January. Yes, I'm late to things, but guys, it's been crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and this was a paper on crocodile reproduction. Ooh, cool. And like kind of a systematic across all of the crocodilian species. So crocodiles are this vital component of their ecosystems, and they often act as a keystone species in tropical regions, so they're very important. And they also represent the last surviving um, pseudo-seducian archosaurs. I don't know. One of the archosaurs, <laughs> which is this uh, okay. one of the last surviving ones of this clade that once inhabited every continent and that has persisted uh, for at least 230 million years. So they are this wow. really ancient, ancient group of organisms yeah. that have been able to survive multiple or the mass, the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction, as well as other extinction events. So they've just been able to kind of survive lots of, you know, global change uh, and extinction events. And it's wow. not really clear why they've been so successful and been able to persist for so long. Um, but one thought is potentially because of their unique reproductive biology. So similar to turtles, they crocodiles do not have sex chromosomes, but instead the incubation temperature of the eggs determines the sex of the individual. Right, right. And so for crocodiles, higher temperatures lead to more males and colder temperatures lead to more females in their like clutch. Oh my gosh. Is this about climate change? Um not not too much, but like has implications for climate change. <sighs> yeah, so scary. Okay, wait, go on. So in this paper, Rebecca Lacken compiled data from literature to investigate the morphological, environmental, and reproductive variables across 24 extant crocodilian species. So she used liter or she used data that was out there across a bunch of different papers and compiled it to look across all these crocodilian species and try to make some sense of what's going on. Wow. And she found that with some notable exceptions, smaller species of crocodile tend to live at latitudes closer to the equator, um, with larger species generally living in more temperate climates in high latitudes. And this isn't, you know, necessarily terribly surprising. A lot of organisms show this relationship. But what's more surprising is that she found, in contrast to turtles, the threshold incubation temperature, so that's the temperature where you get an even number of males and females being produced in a clutch. So this uh, threshold incubation temperature was not correlated with latitude. Oh. Which is strange. So it's when you get into high latitude or like into lot colder areas, they aren't necessarily their 50-50 temperature isn't colder versus tropical temperatures. Yeah. Which uh, is surprising oh. because in turtles... Uh, which produce more females at warmer temperatures, they do show this threshold incubation temperature does correlate with latitude. Okay. T 
turtles have already been strongly impacted by warming temperatures due to global climate change because turtles are now being born overwhelmingly female. So I think about 80% of the individuals being born are female because the temperatures are warmer. And so they're the temperatures are above this threshold incubation temperature. So they're not 50-50 anymore. They're more like 80-20 with more females than males. Yeah, wow. And so this is very different. They're finding different trends than what we see in the crocodiles. And so the authors suggest that the Mm -hmm. geographic, that geographic location may not affect the incubation temperatures of crocodiles as much as it does for turtles because crocodiles uh, have a little bit more reproductive investment. So they select their nesting sites really carefully and bury their nests in rotting vegetation or earth, insulating them from these temperature fluctuations. They also don't have the same, um, you know, sea turtles generally try to come back to the same place where they were born. And so they're not necessarily Mm -hmm. taking into account environmental changes or anything like that when they're laying their nests, whereas crocodiles may be more selective in their sites. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I thought that was just a cool study using data that exists and collating it to try to understand patterns in nature and see how that will affect um, how these species might do to future climate and why they've done so well to past climate changes. Yeah, I mean, I would have assumed that all temperature-dependent sex uh, determination would be altered by Mm -hmm. climate change, you know, like it has been with the turtles. So it's interesting when it's not, and it does require, like, we can't just assume those things. We actually have to test those hypotheses and see how different animals are different, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So that's really cool. And so this kind of leads me to my second shout out. Ooh. So my second shout out is like if you're uh, an academic and you're in grad school and right now you were supposed to have a field season, but your field <laughs> season's going to get canceled. Uh-huh. You know, I think there's a lot of people in that boat that are uncertain of kind of their graduation and how they're going to get their Ugh. science done. And I think there's we have so much data that's yet to be analyzed or that can be analyzed in new ways, can be collated. So this is just like a great example of how you can take data that's out there, create new findings from it, and like pull out interesting observations um, from all of the literature that we already have. Well, what is it? Oh, my second shout out? Yeah. <laughs> this paper was a really good example of how you could, given yeah. a time in quarantine, scour papers or data that's already been collected and create novel findings. Yeah, I'm waiting with bated breath. <laughs> okay, so my second shout out goes to Madeline Green, who's a marine scientist and co-founder of Otlet, which Ooh. is a collective database for research samples. Oh, so usually awesome. I think... She's trying to have people, if you know, for environmental DNA or something like that, mm-hmm. be able to not reinvent the wheel and have people be able to request samples that have already been collected, things like that. Yeah. But in the current situation we're in with COVID, uh, Dr. Green and Oatlet have started this like matchmaking 
system where they're matching students in need of research projects and in need of data uh, with scientists who have data sets that they haven't had time to analyze. Wow, that's really cool. So, So trying to give students who maybe don't know what the future holds in terms of their research, um, hopefully getting them some data that they can, you know, make new collaborations with people and also get papers out and create new findings and do some cool analyses. Yeah. And just stay busy while we're all at home too. (laughs) And stay busy and stay sane. Yeah. And maybe find some cool things out about crocodiles. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, those are my two shout outs. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's that's all we got. That's all I got. <laughs> How <are> the kitties? <laughs> they screamed a little bit. I don't know if the mic would pick <laughs> it up though cuz they're in another room and like they're pretty mm-hmm. quiet. So we'll see. Yeah, usually <laughs> sometimes Andres is screaming from the other room and and you can't hear it on the pod. So Yeah, yeah. I think we're all good. <laughs> uh, we're all good. All right. Well, everybody I know this is kind of a tough time, but I hope we can provide some solace and, like, some distraction. Yeah. And uh, while you're just sitting at home, you might as well write a review for our podcast and tell (laughs) all your friends about it because now you have all the time in the world to do that, right? You've got all the time. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to Artichoke for our music and Caitlin Friesen. For our our beautiful art. Yeah. And uh, as usual, <laughs> go, go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. <laughs> Bye. <So dumb. laughs>